0: Amen. Well, please do now turn in your Bibles to our text for our sermon this morning, which is in Isaiah 14. Uh, Isaiah 14, we continue uh, our studies through this, and this is really the the sister text to the one that we uh, looked at last week in uh, in chapter uh, 13. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, not Jeremiah 14, as I just turned to. So, uh, uh, if you're in Jeremiah, turn one book back and you'll… be in the right place. So, Isaiah chapter 14, and we'll pick up at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 27. Follow along with me as I read. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel, and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves They will take captive those who were their their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The Cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon sing, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to shield, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man Who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and all my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that I purpose concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we continue on through these um, difficult passages of Your Word, we pray for the ministry of Your Spirit, that He would open them to us. Now, all of Scripture is Christian Scripture. All of Scripture is given to us that we might understand the magnificence of our Lord Jesus. And so, we pray that You would guide us now into all truth, that we would see His glory contained in these passages. Father, lead us and guide us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in chapter 13, God had sent out a warning to the Assyrians that He would not let their sin go unpunished. In that dark, even uh, gruesome passage, uh, God sent out the warning that He would not let the sin of the Assyrians go, but that He would, in His sovereign command, call for the Medes to come down from the north and lay waste to Babylon, that crown jewel city of the Assyrian empire that epitomized the hubris and the pride of the Assyrians. There's as a solemn warning that God would not let wickedness run rampant, but that He would in His righteousness and in His justice bring the wickedness of the Assyrians back to them, and as they had dealt to others, so God promised it would be dealt to them. We saw last week that at the heart of that warning, as dark and even as gruesome as it is, there lay really a a beautiful thing, a a call to repentance, a call to self-examination, a call to consider the question, where does your security lie? The security of the Assyrians lay in their might and power, in their military prestige, and in their regional dominance. But God said, while it all might look impressive for a season, it would fall. A day was coming, God said, where it would crumble like a house of cards. When God had determined the end of their days, so it would be. Their earthly power and glory would simply fall away. But wrapped up with that warning of judgment, There was an implicit call to repentance, a call to them to seek mercy while it could still be found, a call to turn away from their pride, a call to put away their arrogance, a call to turn aside from their self reliance, a call for these wicked Assyrians, these wicked Babylonians, to humble themselves before the Lord and cast themselves upon him in faith. But of course, Isaiah wasn't a prophet to Assyria or to Babylon. Well, these reports of this oracle would undoubtedly uh, reach Assyrian ears. This warning would likely be carried uh, by traders and travelers going north into Assyria, and undoubtedly this is a warning that would have been carried with the exiles with them, uh, the Israelites and the Judeans when they went into exile. The initial audience for this oracle was, as is the case with all of Scripture, the people of God themselves. The initial audience for this oracle was the people of Israel and Judah, and primarily the people of Judah, amongst whom Isaiah lived and to whom Isaiah preached. This warning of destruction coming upon the enemies of God's people was one that first and foremost was to be understood by the people of God themselves. Now, last week we saw the first way in which this was to work amongst them. And we saw that it would act like a mirror to make them aware of their own sin, their own, what we could call Babylonian-ness, to make them look into the mirror and see the, just the, the gruesome depths of their own sin, to help them see just how grotesque their departure from fidelity to the Lord was, with the intention that they would see their sin and that they would come and humble themselves before the Lord in repentance and seeking His mercy. But here this warning in chapter 14, as we come to this sister chapter, we see how this functions now in a second way. And specifically, we see how this warning was one that was intended to bring comfort and reassurance to the people of God. This was all part of a word coming from the Lord to His people, reassuring them that one day all their enemies would be overthrown, and they would be brought into a place of perfect peace. This chapter begins with that all-important word, for, or we could alternately translate it, because. Like with so many conjunctions in Scripture, really the whole message of this chapter is built on that word. Why was this oracle predicting the devastation of Babylon to be proclaimed? Well, verse 1, because the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and will, will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Right? Wrapped up in this warning of God's righteous determination to punish evil, to execute justice, and to bring the wicked to account was this wonderfully beautiful message that God had not forgotten His covenant promises. And more than that, it was this word that God was determined Not to let the sin of the people frustrate those covenant promises. In the face of the saber rattling of the nations, in the face of the seemingly unopposable power and might of the anti God forces in the world, here symbolized by Assyrian Babylon, in the face of God's people's own faithlessness. They're wandering away from God, tempted and enticed by the glittering things of this world, stupefied and blinded by their own sin. In the face of it all comes this incredible promise that despite it all, God is determined to bless His people, and He is determined to do the very thing that He had promised in His covenant. In his promise to Abraham, God had covenanted that he would establish a beautiful kingdom of the redeemed. He promised that that, that he would establish a a kingdom of the redeemed whose number would outstrip the grains of sand on the seashore. A people, a a kingdom of the redeemed whose glory would, would transcend that of the stars in the night sky. To Abraham, childless and old, God had promised that from him He would bring this great and godly kingdom. It's summarized in Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It was a promise that was elaborated and expanded in the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses at Sinai. The promise that this people would not just be the people of God, but that they would be the people with God. That they would be intimately related to God, to the point that God would pitch His own tent right in the very midst of their camp, the transcendent God imminent with His earthly people. It was in the covenant with David that God gave what we could call the capstone promise as He revealed that His glorious kingdom near to God would be ruled over by the everlasting rule of a righteous king, a son of David, who would give the people of God final and full rest, safe forever in the kingdom of God. In 1 Chronicles 17, God covenants with David, and He says, I will appoint a place for My people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. These are glorious promises. These are tremendous covenants that God had made with his people. But you understand that by the time we get here to the 8th century BC, these have now become tremendously problematic promises. The king, the son of David, is is faithless as had been every king in Judah for the past 150 years since the reign of King Jehoshaphat. And in the northern kingdom, there had never been a righteous king. Instead of being a people orientated on their relationship to God and anchored by their intimate relationship with the God who sat enthroned in their midst, God had by this time been reduced to being nothing more than just a talisman, a good luck charm, a a token who was given a facade of worship, but the hearts of the people simply ran after their own desires. Instead of dwelling secure in the promised land, it looked like, and God had just warned that the promised land was about to be devastated by pagan empires. It looked like it was all coming apart at the seams. But here is a message from God that that lifts the curtain for us, that lifts the curtain for these 8th century B.C. Judeans and all the people of God who have come after them. And it gives us an insight into how this will all end. A day is coming, God promises, when those who attack and persecute his people will be brought to account. A day is coming when the people of God will be established fully and finally in the great and glorious kingdom promised in those covenants. That's the message that Isaiah is is carrying here, isn't it? It's a message of grace. This is part of that golden thread that we have seen run throughout the chapters of Isaiah chapter 13 is undoubtedly heavy, but yet it is part of God's calling to His faithless people, to His adulterous people, telling them of His absolute determination to bless them, even though they do not deserve it. God has already warned them that their sin is going to result in the removal of blessings. It's no great surprise, but it was It was solemn and sobering when we read it in chapter 7, wasn't it? God has warned them that to continue in the life of self-reliance and in the pursuit of self-satisfaction will be to bring upon themselves the chastening hand hand of God. But here we are told explicitly that that too is part of God's grace. Right here we are given this great word of comfort and reassurance, this promise that the removal of God's blessing will not be the final cutting off coming from an angry God who has just had enough and has lost patience with His willful and disobedient people. No, God is saying this will be hard, and it will be sorrowful, but, but it will be nothing other than, than the Hebrews 12 loving discipline of a heavenly Father. It will be a moment of pain for sure, but one that is designed not to destroy, but to discipline the sons of God. So, even those chapters where God has said that He will whistle for the Assyrians who will come and sweep over Israel and Judah like the Euphrates bursting its banks, even those chapters, we are reassured here, are chapters that are full of mercy and grace because they are chapters in which God is addressing His people and essentially saying to them, "'I love you so much.'" that I cannot let you keep on doing what you are doing. I love you so much that that I will discipline you so that you will see your sin, and you will understand your danger, and you will come back to me, your covenant king, and you will once again find safety and peace in me. The intention go like with all these passages of judgment is that the people of Israel and Judah would be shocked into seeing the true nature of their sin and that they would be brought to a position of repentance. It was implicit in those previous chapters, but here now God makes it explicit there is to be absolutely no doubt in the people of God. Here, God, through Isaiah, is giving this glimpse of how all of history is going to end, and it will end not with the destruction of God's people by the pagans, but rather that temporary affliction will be lifted, and those who have been the enemies of God's people will be subdued, and the people of God will be established safe and secure. A day is coming, God says, when His enemies and the enemies of His people will be brought low, They will be humbled, even humiliated, as we read in that song, and the people of God will be established, abundant, free, joyful, satisfied, in their own land forever, just as God had said. But as we read this, we are wise to ask the question, well, when? When does this come about? Well, it's tempting to see the return of the Judeans from their captivity in Babylon, as the fulfillment of this promise. Right? In 539 BC King Cyrus would encourage the returned to, would encourage the return of the exiled Judeans uh, to Palestine and that he would even equip them and strengthen them to rebuild their society. But in many ways it it was the fulfillment of this passage. Suddenly after years generations even of foreign domination Here was now a foreign kingdom facilitating and protecting the people of God as they went home and rebuilt their kingdom. But as Alec Motir has observed in his commentary on this chapter, Cyrus, like many a soldier turned politician, replaced the sword in his hand by a tongue in his cheek and did what was to his own advantage under the guise of piety. There was no international acclaim or will to help, no reversal of the captor, captive roles. It was undoubtedly good that the exiled Judeans were able to go home. It was undoubtedly good that they were able to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But what they achieved was only a bare shadow of what God is promising here what they were able to do remained at the permission and grant of a foreign power. In fact, this whole area would remain in whole or in part under the control of one foreign power or another, even really up to this present day. So, that was not the fulfillment of this chapter. So, when would this come true? Well, the fulfillment of this passage would truly begin in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, And it will finally be completed in His glorious return, in which He will make all things new and bring His people into His perfect kingdom. When Jesus rose from His grave, He demonstrated that He had done what no other descendant of David could do. And He had struck the death blow to the greatest enemy that we face, which is sin and and death. In Hebrews 2, we read, "'Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood,' He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Or we can turn to Ephesians 1, verse 19, when Paul talked about the immeasurable greatness of the power of God towards us who believe, working to the, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you understand what, what Paul's describing in Ephesians 1, what the writer's describing in Hebrews 2, it is... It's Isaiah 14. It is this picture of Jesus as this great triumphant king who has put, Paul says, all rule and authority and power and dominion under His feet. He is the one who rules over them all, not a a kingdom in this world that is not laid low and humbled before the throne of King Jesus. Jesus. When He rose from His grave, He showed Himself to be the very King who would make all of this true. He showed Himself to be the very Son of David, in whom all of these promises would find their yea and their amen. It is in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus that Isaiah 14 comes true. But of course, we don't see it. Fully true, yet we still live in a world in where there are plenty of Babylons, plenty of Assyrians that oppress the people of God, who come against God and try to suppress His worship. We have prayed already for Iran and Iraq, two kingdoms, which were, who, if there are two kingdoms on earth that are indulging their Babylonian spirit, it is the Iraq and Iran, one in a very formal, governmental way, one another in a in a more organic and social way, but either, in either case, the people of God oppressed and the worship of God denied. And so, we can ask, well, when? When will we see this? If this is ultimately true now through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, when will it become manifestly true? Well, of course, it will become manifestly true at His return, when His great glory as this Savior King will be finally revealed. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes in verse 24, Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him when all things are subjected to him then the son himself will be the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that god may be all in all on that day everything that is described here will come true on that day paul is saying using that word subjection in more ways than is comfortable to read out loud and 1 Corinthians 15, he is emphatically making that point that everything that is said here will come true. And all of the enemies of God will be humiliated before the people of God. A new world will be established in which a new humanity will be on display. A new world will be established where it is not just the power brokers of this world that are able to steer the fortunes of this world, or at least so it seems from our perspective but there will be a world in which there is no more animosity or hostility, a new world in which there will be no more self-centeredness, no more cruel and violent kingdom building, no division between man and man, no desire to get ahead by putting others down, but rather in its place there will just be peace, there will be shalom. There'll be a wholeness. There'll be a richness of of security and satisfaction, a delight. It will be green pastures and still waters by which the people of God lie themselves down to rest. The wicked will be brought low, the faithful, godly, granted peace. But as we close, we need to ask, well, how do we apply this? Well, first and foremost, we apply it by seeing the glory of Christ as our great Redeemer. We apply it by seeing Christ as the true and perfect Israel, who has fully obeyed the law of God in thought, word, and deed, and who has gone to the cross so that, as Peter puts it, by His wounds we might be healed. Do you understand that all of this is wrapped up with our union with Christ. You must never think of Christ as some kind of heavenly contractor brought in to do an external work of salvation. Firemen are external contractors. We call them in to do a job and they come in and they rescue you from a burning building, but they always just do it externally. You remain two distinct people. The life of that firefighter has little to do with the rescue that you receive. He does a work, we gain the benefits. But you understand that's not Christ. He doesn't just save us externally. You are not just saved by Christ you're not just saved through Christ, you're saved in Christ. Hugh Martin, the 19th century Scottish minister, put it like this. He said, all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hid in Christ. All spiritual blessings for the church of God are treasured up in Him. No saving gift or grace or blessing is given, so to speak, past Him, or out of Him, all are given in Him. Hence, an actual conjunction with Him by the indwelling of His own Spirit and the embracing action of our faith is indispensable to our enjoying the redemption which is in Christ, or any of the blessings of His purchase. God could promise this wonderful day of redemption, to His horrendously faithless people in the 8th century BC, because He knew that in Christ, a perfect representative would come, and that He would fulfill all the terms of the covenant, and in Him, all the people of God would receive their blessing. And so, the first point of application is simply to read this And worship Christ. To read this and love and sing and wonder and praise the Savior's name as we realize that everything that is said here is only true because of what Christ has done and can only be applied to us by our union and communion with Him. Apart from Him, you are lost. You are the Assyrians here. But in Him, you are blessed. With these blessings beyond number. Secondly, we need to apply this personally by seeing in these Judeans our own propensity to grow enamored with the things of this world. We need to see in these Judeans our own propensity to undervalue our security in Christ. We ought to see in these Judeans our own tendency to walk by sight and not by faith and to get intimidated by the power brokers of this world. That's what has led the Judeans away, isn't it? That's what has so caused Ahaz's heart to crumble. He has seen the Assyrians come for him, and he has grown terrified. And so, in his own self-reliance, he's gone out to try and make alliances with other people. We do the same thing. But we see here also the very thing that the writer warned the Hebrews, that God, in His love for us, will at times chasten us and discipline us, There are times where He will bring us into seasons of sorrow and heartbreak, and it can feel as if God has turned His back on us. But here, we're given the bigger picture, and our eyes are lifted, and we see the determined love of God to bless His people despite their sin. And so, if you have faith in Christ this morning, then Isaiah 14 is a great word of comfort for you. It is a great word of reassurance that you can never be cast off because your fate is wrapped up in Christ. If you are conjoined to Him by faith, as Hugh Martin described it, then our fortunes are wrapped up in Christ. And that means that we can only face a future in which we are brought safely to the end. You understand, Christian, this is a chapter that gives you concrete assurance. This is a chapter that gives you a strong anchor for your soul so that you are buffeted and rocked by the storms of this world and the missteps of your own heart and the failings of your own devotion. We are reassured here that you are kept safe, that there is no chance that God will lose His patience and give up on you, but rather heaven will always remain mightier than hell, and for Christ's sake you will be saved. Isaiah seems at first reading to simply tell us of a God that is full of wrath against sin, and he does tell us of that wrath and that justice of God that must be exercised against those who forsake His law and deny Him His glory. But you understand Isaiah is not one-dimensional. When we scratch the surface, we see that running through these chapters is the constant theme of God's mercy and grace, the constant theme of God's determination to bless His people and keep His covenants. These are chapters that tell us of Christ, chapters that unfold for us more of the glories and wonders of His saving work. Worship Christ, adore Him, and rest secure in His saving work. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we delight ourselves this morning in the glories of Christ our Savior. Oh, Father, we thank You. Though we are so often faithless, we are so often prone to leave the God we love, yet we give You thanks that You are a God of grace and mercy and a God of determination, a God who will not just let us go, but who will bring us safely to the end. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to delight in this more fully, to draw closer to you, even to hide ourselves in you as we, as we face the, the, the threats of this world, as we face even the faithlessness of our hearts. Lord, may we be quick to run to you and hide ourselves in you, secure in your promises, holding on to these chapters and waiting for that day when Christ will return and His glorious King will be made manifest before all the world. Amen.